demo, it is less than two weeks until our brand new event, the Wellness Base Camp hits Adelaide. Oh, I can't wait, MP. Oh, Damo, we can't wait to have you in Adelaide. The Brisbane Base Camp was a sellout. The feedback from attendees was inspiring. Christine said, keep up the incredible work and energy. You make me feel so, so good. And Kira said, I loved all the speakers and the vibe in the room. So many aha moments. And Lauren said, no matter how many times I hear each of these people speak, I learn new things always and have action steps to take away. Can't wait to have you there, great man. The rock star of wellness is joining Kim Morrison, JP and Andy from Smashed Avocado, Brett Hill and myself at the Wellness Base Camp Saturday, April 7th at the Arca Bar in Adelaide. Two for one tickets available with the code COUNTDOWN at www.thewellnessbasecamp.com on Eventbrite or search for The Wellness Base Camp Adelaide on Facebook. That code again is COUNTDOWN with tickets available at thewellnessbasecamp.com on Eventbrite or by typing The Wellness Base Camp Adelaide in Facebook. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your life. Welcome to Wellness Women Radio for the women with big dreams who dare to be different and who want to thrive in health, work and play. Dr. Ashley Bond and Dr. Andrea Huddleston bring you a weekly podcast to help you master true health and create an exceptional life. Hello there, wonderful listeners. Thank you for joining us again this week on Wellness Women Radio. I'm Ashley. And I'm Andrea. And this week we have an incredibly special guest, someone who uh, has, I guess, sat in both of our lives as pivotal points in some of the teachings that he shared and uh, have certainly been there at catalytic sort of changes in our lives. I know that I can credit my entire career to one moment in time, having listened to this gentleman uh, speak at an event and I just went, right, <laughs> that's I'm on the right track. This is what I meant to do when I thought I was about to change everything. So um, I can certainly say with a great affection that Dr. John Martini is someone that uh, I hold with great esteem. He's considered one of the world's leading authorities on human behavior and personal development. He is the founder of the Martini Institute, which is um, a private research education institution um, and organization, and they have over 70 courses that cover all sorts of different areas of human development. So it's certainly a treasure trove of learning right there. Mm. Dr. Martini travels 360 days a year. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how. But uh, he does it and he goes to countries all over the globe and he shares his research, his findings and his teachings. He's just a man on a mission with so much passion. And it's just such a privilege to have him uh, on the podcast today. Now, ladies, we are recording uh, this little snippet intro a little bit later than the interview for a couple of reasons. Um, Dr. Andrea was a lucky girl who got to interview him this week. I'm kind of just a little bit jealous about that. Um, I also had some interviews going on and they just happened to be at the exact same time and we could not find these you know international moments to try and record with people all over the world at the same time it was just uh it was funny wasn't it everything came flushing through on the same day at the same time I was like how is that meant to be <laughs> and, it, and it just happened so quickly as well when his um uh PR contacts from over here contacted us which floored me enough as it is and then just with our schedules as well sometimes uh the stars didn't all align but Ash to be honest I was um a very willing participant in the interview and I, I definitely got to ask a lot of questions that fascinate me the most um so I know that you're going to enjoy the episode anyway but to be honest it, 
Dr. Martini led the entire thing. You know, it, it was more him than me interacting with anything. And he was so incredibly generous with his time as well. We usually only record for about half an hour and he kind of kept going, kept asking me, you know, we gave the time. And I'm like, hey, we will go as long as possible. Um, and he was just amazing. And so the call went for about an hour and 10 minutes. So it's a bit longer than our normal podcast, ladies. But I know that you're going to get so much out of it. Um, by the end of it, he even had his assistant knocking on his door, you know, kind of reminding him that, hey, there's something else we need to get to. Um, he's just such a wealth of knowledge. So um, please have a listen, re-listen to it. Um, you know, make sure you like time mark the, the areas that are really important to you. We go through everything from you know, like your life purpose and your values and what your highest values are to a whole bunch of specific health things like what the a potential mindset causes of things like um, obesity and food addictions. He even talks about his experience with Oprah and her food addiction, um, infertility, uh, a whole bunch of things. Like it's just amazing. Um, I even asked him what the meaning of life is. We got pretty philosophical there for a little while. So unbelievable there is absolutely guaranteed to be some incredible aha moments in this episode so look without further ado we need to roll into this because you're going to have a a long listening day today but absolutely worth every single minute Um, ladies enjoy it's going to be wonderful Dr. Martini, welcome to Wellness Moon Radio and to our beautiful tribe of women who are listening in Uh, we are so grateful to have you on the podcast this morning so thank you welcome thank you and uh, welcome back Thank you. Um, Dr. Martini. I think I attended one of my first seminar of yours that I attended. I was 15 years old. So that was, gosh, 18 years ago now. You still look exactly the same, by the way. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how that is possible, the, the timeless man. Um, I'm liking this podcast already. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we ease them in, right? Uh, the hard questions come later. How did you go from... And what I would love for our women to understand is how did you go from being a homeless and dyslexic 13-year-old to now someone who's written 40 books, um, and I'm probably I'm sure it's probably more by now, you speak and teach in almost every country in the world, and you're certainly one of our greatest thought leaders. Can you unpack that, that journey for our listeners, please? Um, well, from 13, I, I did leave home. <clears throat> My... Um, and I did hang out first at some friends' houses and in parks and in bowling alleys and outdoors and, you know, street kid. And then I moved at 14. I hitchhiked to California and I uh, was into surfing and Texas wasn't the surf capital. So <laughs> I uh, went out to California to get better waves. And I lived in Huntington Beach, California, primarily, although I was up and down the coast. And um, at 15, uh the waves there, I felt like I'd, I'd achieved. And I went to Hawaii because that's where the best waves were. And I first lived under a bridge. <clears throat> then I socially climbed and went into a park bench. <laughs> From a park bench, I went to a bathroom because the rain was messing me up. <clears throat> then I found an abandoned car. And then finally, I found a guy that wanted to get rid of a tent. And um, so I had built me a kind of a grass house tent combination. <clears throat> and I lived there until I was 18 surfing. And I came close to dying from strychnine cyanide poisoning right 
about a few weeks before my 18th birthday. And in recovery that, because I'd, I'd been, I was unconscious for three and a half days, almost didn't make it. Luckily, a lady found me in my tent in the jungle. But I was led to a health food store uh, by the lady who found me to try to get some nutrients in me. And that, from there, I was led to a little yoga class because I had strychnine poisoning, which damages your neuromuscular system. Yeah. And somebody suggested I do a yoga class. <clears throat> and at the yoga class, I met a teacher named Paul Bragg. And Paul Bragg, in one hour, one night, um, inspired me to... He, he, uh, that was the first night in my life that I believed that I might be able to read and become intelligent. See, I didn't, I had reading problems, learning problems, speaking, speaking problems when I was a child. I had a speech pathologist when I was one and a half years old from there on out. <clears throat> and so I never believed I was ever going to be able to read. That's why I left school. And I never thought I was going to be able to, you know, communicate very well. So when that, that night when I met him, for some reason, being around the guy, I, I believe that maybe I could overcome these challenges. I really wanted to be intelligent. I just never thought I was going to be. I thought I was going to just do uh, athletics. And Was there something in particular that he said to you that really struck a chord? Well, he said that we have a body, mind, and soul. And the body must be directed by the mind. Mind must be guided by the soul to maximize who we are. And that we need to set goals for our Stuff, our family, our community, our city, our state, our nation, our world, and beyond for 120 years. <clears throat> Nobody ever spoke to me like this. And he, uh, he said that what we think about ourselves, what we see for ourselves, what we say to ourselves, and how we feel about ourselves uh, can change and can change the direction of ourselves. And I just thought, what if I started to believe I could? Or what if I, you know, just, I really wanted to be intelligent. My sister was intelligent. I always wanted to be, I didn't want to feel like a, a dunce because I had to wear a dunce cap when I was in first grade. <clears throat> so that was really important to me. And I had a dream that night, a vision that night. The best way I can describe it is a really lucid vision, which has been painted by a Melbourne Australian uh, famous artist now that sits in my office, this big, beautiful painting of me standing in front of a million people speaking and on a balcony. And um, that was very important to me. And I saw that and I, set out well first i started studying with this man for three weeks every morning i was with this man mm -hmm. and he he said some really cool stuff that i still use today that um made me believe that i can do this and i set out to do that i, I wanted to go out and overcome my learning problems i want to learn how to read i want to learn how to speak properly uh, i wanted to travel the world i wanted to um, <clears throat> share what i was learning with people and do what this man did. I said that night when I met him, I said, someday when I'm his age, I want to find a 17-year-old young kid and I want to pass the torch. And so I've been working on it, chipping away. It's, it was not overnight. It was just a, <clears throat> it was a chipping away process. And I remember when I went back to Texas to see my parents, you know, they were surprised. They didn't know I was coming back. And um, I had long hair and a beard at the time. They didn't even recognize me. <laughs> my, my, my father and sister drove right past me as I was hitchhiking, didn't even know me. And um, they suggested I take a GED test, which is a high school equivalency test. So I have a high school degree to help me get a job. And I guessed and I passed. And they said, well, why don't you take a college entrance just in case? I guessed and I passed. And it's just purely guessing. I mean, it literally just closed my eyes, 
and, and said, I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom, which Paul Bragg said to save myself every day. And um, I pass. It was like something supernatural to me at the time. It didn't make any sense, but here I am passing and I'm now having a high school degree. And I'm now getting in, into college. And then I took my first class in college and I thought I was going to pass that too, but I ended up with a 27 on my score and I almost gave up on it. I literally cried most of the way home thinking this whole thing was a delusion. And uh, I curled up in the living room under this Bible stand that my mom had in the living room and just had a really low moment thinking, because, you know, you're building momentum thinking, that, okay, I'm going to learn how to read and I'm going to learn how to become a teacher. And all of a sudden you can't pass the test. You have 27. And you go, well, maybe this story that my first grade teacher said, he'll never read, he'll never write, he'll never communicate, he'll never mount a thing, never go very far in life. Maybe this is real. And my mom came home and caught me crying on the living room. And she looked at me and she said, what happened? And I told her and she said, she finally put her hand on my shoulder because she didn't know what else to do. And she said, son, whether you become a great teacher, healer, and philosopher and travel the world like you dream, whether you go back to ride giant waves like you've done, because I rode 40-foot waves in those days. And he said, uh, she said, or you return to the streets and panhandle as a bum like you've done. I says, I just want to let you know that your father guy and I are going to love you no matter what you do. And when she said that, I needed to hear that. Because <clears throat> I realized that, you know, you want to be loved. Everybody wants to be loved for who they are. And I felt that for a moment. And that, that made my hand go into a fist of determination. And I said to myself, I'm gonna master this thing called reading. I'm gonna master this thing called studying and learning. I'm gonna master this thing called teaching. And I'm gonna do whatever it takes. I'm gonna travel whatever distance. I'm gonna pay whatever price to give my service of love. <clears throat> I'm not gonna let any human being on the face of the earth stop me from it, not even myself. Mm -hmm. And I got up, I hugged my mom. I went in my room and I got a dictionary out Funk and Wagnall's Dictionary, which I still have in my office because I didn't want to throw that away. It's full of tape. And it, um, I went to the first page of the dictionary and I said, I'm going to commit to memorizing this dictionary. And so I did 30 words a day. And my mom would test me on the 30 words, how to spell them, how to say them, how to pronounce them, and how to use them in a sentence. And uh, I gradually grew my vocabulary 30 words a day until um, I passed school. And then until I excelled, and it wasn't that long really, it was just a matter of months before I started really excelling. And I was, no one in the school had as much determination, determination as I did to want to learn that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Most kids were going to school because that's what you do. Parents wanted you to do it. They wanted to party. Mm -hmm. I was serious now. And I uh, started reading every day. I started reading encyclopedias. I read eight complete sets of different encyclopedias. My um, my mom, one year later, when I turned, it's just about before I turned 19, I was born on Thanksgiving Day, so she said, you know, what do you want for Thanksgiving? What do you want for your birthday and Christmas? <clears throat> and I said, I want the greatest teachings on the face of the earth, the greatest writings humanity's ever created from around the world. She said, okay, uh, a t-shirt. <laughs> I said, no, that's all I want. Just want good, good books. And so she contacted her brother, who's a professor at MIT, or my uncle, Uncle Ralph. And she literally, or he literally sent two giant six by six by six foot wooden crates on a flatbed truck to our house filled with thousands of books. A, a, a giant library. And I remember opening that, those crates up with a crowbar 
<clears throat> and uh, I filled my room with books and I just went to work and I started reading everything and anything I could get my hands on and anything that would maximize life and human potential and the laws of the universe kind of thing. And I started excelling and I started having, before I turned 19, I already accumulated a couple students. I had a, a Iranian guy, Persian guy, uh, that was asking me to tutor him. Then I had a Afro-American girl, then finally a German fellow. And then I had about 17 kids that I was starting to tutor every day. By the time I left the first school and I went on to the University of Houston, um, I had between 100 and 150 people on average a day under the trees every day uh, doing Q&A. Sometimes we'd swell up to 400 people. And uh, if it rained, we'd go in the cafeteria. And then when I went on from there to professional school, I had classes every night, seven nights a week for three hours a night. And then I started teaching the classes at school because I, I got to place out of the school classes and teach the classes. And then when I got out into practice, I, I kept it up. I just kept doing talks every night, um, which caused challenge in my relationship because I don't think she understood that I, this was important to me, but, uh, and I just kept teaching it. And that grew from the from the community to um, I started having my own TV show and radio shows mm -hmm. and teaching the city. And then I had the opportunity to speak at big conferences and it started going state and the nation and it just kept going. And I had a goal <clears throat> uh, in 1982, uh, October 12th, I remember I uh, had a, a vision that I would, I would have students from every country around the world from, uh, the, from the face of the earth. And in 2016, in October, we actually, um, between our webinars and podcasts and live seminars and things, we finally reached, uh, we have now students in our database now from every country around the world. So it took me 34 years to get there, but 30, 32 years to get there. But um, we actually, or 34 years, but we actually accomplished it. Now we have students in every country around the world. And that was a dream that started in 82. So I just just kept methodically reading, writing, sharing, teaching, um, doing what I love doing. That's I love research, writing, traveling and teaching. So I just did it every day. I learned to delegate everything and let everything else go. So I surrounded myself gradually with a team of people that could do everything but what I wanted to do and what I was good at. And I um, today I, I, I do podcasts throughout the morning and then I have meetings about uh, programs in Brazil at lunch and then I have um, more uh, meetings <clears throat> and interviews and, and yesterday I taught day before I taught day mm -hmm. before I taught so I if I'm not traveling sometimes I'm, I'm bugging people to sit next to me I'm uh, I'm teaching because I love doing that's what I and I love researching and writing so I, every time I'm not teaching I'm researching and writing so I I'm quite neurotic some people they think I'm you know one track mind and not diverse some things but it's just what I love doing so I have to be true to myself I learned that we're not here to live in the shadows of anyone we're here to stand on the shoulders of giants and I'd rather study the greatest minds on the earth and try to synthesize it and try to share it I want to know the most universal principles to build the greatest foundation of knowledge I could oh, Dr. Martin, it's incredible and how you have now morphed your life just to do what you love and just to do what is most important to you. And I know that 
you are certainly walking your talk in terms of what your values are and you have uh, an incredible pure values factor and the value determination that you have on your website. Um, I know that for a lot of women when we talk to them about what their values might be, they say things like, oh, you know, it's their kids or their family um, or maybe it's their job but their life doesn't necessarily demonstrate that like what you've just described. Um, is that because we are so conditioned to think that our highest values should always be a certain list of things? Well, <clears throat> I've, I've taken, uh, I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands of people through the value processes. So um, I've seen different patterns there. There was a psychologist named Kohlberg who uh, described the stages of moral development for people. <clears throat> and he said at the very bottom of the rung of the moral development is the natural tendency to want to avoid pain and seek pleasure. Mm -hmm. And that we have an impulse for pleasure and an instinct from pain. And in our amygdala, the most primitive part of the inner hindbrain area might say, we react that way. So from zero to one, we tend to play, we, we put something in our mouth, if it's sweet, we, we eat it, if it's bitter, we throw it out. And then when age one, we, our mother, we depend on our mother mainly. So our mother becomes the source of the superego, which is the injected value of an authority. Mm -hmm. And we start to try to please her. And we have an internal conflict between what, what we value and what our mother tells us we need to do to survive. And we don't have a myelinated brain yet. So we're kind of impulsive. So she's trying to guide us into society and overrun our animal impulses. So we call this socialization, Piaget called it that, but reality is it's also somewhat of a suppression of our own identity mm -hmm. and we have to work through that. But then we go on to father, usually around age four, we start to having, being told by the father by then and preacher and then teacher by the time we're five and six. And then we go through elementary school till about age 12 being influenced by mother's father's preachers, teachers, and all the rules and values that they hold and we depend on them so we have to kind of abide by them so we have internal conflicts about what's important to us versus what's important to them then when we hit 13 we start seventh grade or so we now have the peer pressure start so we hit the teenage years and our hormones are changing and we want our independence but at the same time we are dependent and we have another set of now outside social injections of values that we look up to. It could be teachers, it could be peer pressure of, of colleagues and friends. And that adds to confusion, which is pretty crazy during those teenagers. And then we get to, uh, from our school friends to then we go to work and we have now our, our peers there. Then we end up trying to start our own company. Then we have new levels of industries we have to abide by. So we're constantly moving through new domains and dynamics of authority. Mm -hmm. Uh, trying to find our own individuality in that. You know, we're here to stand out, not to fit in, but we are constantly having to fit in to function in society. So this confuses our, our true values. By the time we're 27 years old and the brain is myelinated up in the executive center, now we have a yearning to want to be ourselves. Mm -hmm. And yet we've been so indoctrinated by how we're supposed to be that we're having to struggle to find our way through that, navigate that. Mm -hmm. By the time we're in our 40s, Usually the people that we were subordinating to we're now at the age of and we realize they're just human beings and they're not really authorities. So hopefully by age 36, which is the average age of 
where we start to transcend this, um, we either transcend it and said, all right, screw it, we're going to be ourselves, or we end up trapped. And most people, without even realizing it, uh, are injecting the values of others and living by these social idealisms. And the way they know it is by the shoulds, ought tos, supposed tos, got tos, have tos, and must, the imperative language that's whispering in their head as they speak even. Mm-hmm. If very few people know and honor their true values, and I tell people, uh, if you just ask somebody what their values are, you can be assured, I've done it thousands of times, that they're gonna tell you social idealisms. Yeah. And, and I created a value determination process, which is on my website to try to screen through that, navigate through that, and try to get to the most objective data. And um, so I look at how people fill their space, I look at how they spend their time, I look at what energizes them, because they have more energy when they're doing something that's meaningful, uh, where they spend their money, where they're most organized, where they're most disciplined, where they think about, visualize, and affirm about how they want their life that shows evidence of coming true, not Mm -hmm. lack of evidence. What do they love conversing with other people about? What are they inspired by? What are their most consistent goals that are coming true? And what is it that they love learning about spontaneously? I look at what their life demonstrates they spontaneously do. And it isn't always what they think it's supposed to be. And many times um, a woman who says, oh, I'm trying to get a business, but no matter what I do, I just don't have time for it. I can't get it because I'm too busy with my kids. Mm -hmm. The truth is the kids are their highest value at that moment. Five years from now, it may be different, but right now, their kids are high in a priority. And it may be wise to have that because that's there at a certain age where that may be essential. <laughs> but they have the internal conflict because they, they're comparing themselves with women that don't have that as their values, that want to do business. And they're thinking, I should be doing this. I ought to be doing this. And so there's a, a conflict because they want to fit into the group, but they also want to be themselves. And so I help them get clear about it and then allow them to honor what's really true and try not to be a cat that's expecting to swim or a fish that's expecting to climb. <laughs> and uh, and it's liberating when women or men discover that and give themselves permission to be themselves. And it's because I always say the magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies trying to live in somebody else's values that you want, want it to be. Because you won't be committed spontaneously, intrinsically to things that aren't really highest on your value. So I had a woman this weekend in the breakthrough experience, which I've done 1,000, God knows how many times now, um, who <coughs> don't know what my purpose is. And I said, well, your life's demonstrating it. Just open your eyes and let's look objective what your day is. <clears throat> and she didn't want to admit that her kids were the most important things in her life. Mm. And she just didn't think that was good enough. And she was asking permission. Is that okay? Is that enough? And I said, Rose Kennedy of the Rose Kennedy Kennedy family uh, had a mission statement, which I actually have a book from the Kennedys that had her mission statement written in it. So I know for a fact it's there. Uh, She said, I dedicate my life to raising a family of world leaders. I said, her mission was to be a mother raising great kids. And she broke down in tears. She said, that's all I've ever wanted to do. And I said, well, then give yourself permission to go and create a family of amazing people. And she just gave him, came up and ran up and gave him, gave me a hug. That's all I've ever wanted to do. I, I needed permission to do that. And I said, no, you don't. You've been wanting to do it. Give yourself permission. It's your own permission. It matters. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she cried and she says, that's okay. I'm done. I'm, I know my mission. I said, you've known it the whole time, but you could, we only cloud the clarity of our mission 
to the degree that we subordinate to other people and inject their values in our life and compare ourselves to them and live in their shadows. Mm-hmm. So I, I love liberating people from that because the moment they are true to what's valuable to them, they excel and they do extraordinary things because ordinary things, the ordinary person is uh, subordinating to so many people. They've lost themselves. Yeah. They're lost souls, if you will. And um, that's why I do the breakthrough experience to try to help people navigate through that, that uh, labyrinth and to discover the brilliance that they have inside that they don't always see because uh, the moment they really see it, glimpse of it, they appreciate themselves because their self-worth is a reflection of how congruent they are with their highest values. Mm -hmm. If they don't live by their highest values, they devalue themselves. It's that simple. You live by higher values. You have a higher value on yourself. You live by lower values. you, You lower your value of yourself. Your value of yourself is a reflection of where you fit on your own priorities, your own true priorities. So I love people helping people, get clear about what that is and then prioritize their life and learn how to navigate and, and delegate things. Cause if you don't find a way of getting paid to do something you love to do, you'll have a vocation vacation split schizophrenia. But if you can get paid to do what you love and I believe you can, because I've, I haven't found somebody I can't show them how to make a handsome living doing what they love. There's always a way. I just, I love helping people do that. And um, I mean, I had a woman that in my program in, the breakthrough experience in New York that I asked her, what is it you'd absolutely love to do in your life? She says, I love spending time with my dog. She did not have a husband. She did not have any kids. She had a friggin' dog that was part husband and part kids. <laughs> yeah. I, I totally her. know what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> slept with her. I don't think they made love, but they, they, they slept with her, they had conversations. She treated them like, you know, a husband and kids. Yeah. So I said, how could you get handsome to be paid to spend time with your dog? She goes, I have no idea. I said, well, answer it. And we came up with an idea because she had a little chihuahua and the dog was quite cute. It says people come up sometimes and want to get pictures. I could possibly become his agent and he could become a model and we could charge for it. I said, great. So she went to Central Park. She was in New York. And she made $5 the first day. Well, that night when she uh, got $5, because she never had the courage to say, well, that'll be $5. So now she said, no, it's $5. She made a card. I'm his agent. He's a, he's, a, he's a thing for fun. Well, that turned to $15 the next day because what she did is she got this little red tube, elastic tube thing made for him and got some sunglasses for him and, and taught him how to walk on his hind feet. And um, she got $15 the next day. Within a month, she was at $125 a day in the park. And one day a guy came up, was watching her get pictures done. And was intrigued by it. And he walked up and he says, I think I could use your dog because everything is so popular. I think I could use your dog in a commercial. Well, the Milk Bone Dog Biscuit Company made him a mascot and put him on the map. That put $2.2 million in her pocket. She then did two other major commercials. She was in comp- competition with the Taco Bell dog. Then had her own TV show, three TV shows in New York with her dog called Moms and Dogs. And... Over a 20-year period, that dog died. She got another dog that looked identical, trained it up. Nobody knew it even died. It, it was a 20-year-old living dog, basically. There's actually three dogs. No, no, no. She never told anybody that one died and we got a new one. They're identical looking. It's an ageless thing. That may be what happened to me. You know, maybe yeah. Yeah. You're just a clone of your previous yeah. self. Yeah. But <clears throat> she, um, she ended up, as of April two years ago, just under two years, 
she'd been in contact with me at least every three months, you know, because her life changed. Mm-hmm. It breaks her. And she never would have thought she could be a multimillionaire ass with a dog. I mean, they have, they had, until he passed away recently, uh, they had a penthouse in New York that was a $5 million penthouse. Um, they really did it up. He had his own clothesline. I mean, he, he was, this, this was a dog. It went on the Oscars. It was at the Academy Awards. This dog has been everywhere. Everybody knows this dog. That's but she retired with the dog and finally found a man the first time in her life. And she retired the dog, Eli. And she contacted me. She says, uh, I netted $25 million out of this deal. Uh, I have my own foundation now. I've got me a man in my life. Uh, I'm, I, I feel that Eli has been my lover and everything all these years. And that, uh, thank you. Because that would never have happened if it hadn't have been a breakthrough. And mm-hmm. what I asked her to do by asking, how do you get handsomely paid to do what you love? And I've helped thousands of people to re- re- get ridiculously weird stuff and make a good living at it. So uh, you never convince me you can't do what you love and get handsomely paid for it. Because I've worked with that for 40 something years. That is amazing. Uh, Dr. Dimartini, I want to I want to change tunes for a second because I want to ask you some of the biggest questions or the biggest roadblocks that I see with patients every day, and the questions that we get from our listeners all the time. And I know that you are the the mindset and you know human performance master, but I also know that that translates into our health as well, our physical health. And one of the biggest things that women are struggling with are things like food addiction and weight gain. From your perspective, what sort of things can they do to shift that? Well, I uh, I have addressed that. I did a whole series on that. First of all, we have uh, we have a hierarchy of values mm-hmm. and things that are most important to least important in our life. Like I love researching and teaching, but I don't drive and cook. I haven't cooked since I was 24. I haven't driven in 27 and a half years. Because anything that's low on my values, I delegate to other people. Because you don't even have a cell phone, do you? No, I don't have a cell phone. So, um, That's impressive. We're going to come back to that later. <laughs> yeah, because I, I want my freedom to research and write. But anyway, yeah. um, everybody has a hierarchy of values. And whatever's highest on your value, you are intrinsically called to do it spontaneously. You're disciplined to do it. Nobody has mm-hmm. to remind you to do it. Nobody has to incentivize you or push you to do it. But whatever's low on your values, you will need outside motivation, incentive, and reminding to do so anytime you're doing something high on your value, the blood glucose and oxygen in the brain migrates up into the forebrain mm-hmm. and activates the, primarily the medial prefrontal cortex, which is the executive center. This center is responsible for inspired vision, strategic planning, executing plans, self-governance, because mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a fascicle of nerves that go from that area down to the amygdala and calm down the nucleus accumbens and, and amygdala, which is our impulse center. For eating and consuming mm-hmm. and um, so the second we're living by our highest values that executive center comes online I show people in the breakthrough experience exactly when that goes online I, I let them experience that by, by the way they live and by the decisions they make I, mm-hmm. I show them so they get to know what that's like the second they do they see an inspired vision and when they have an inspired vision their metabolic rate goes up their uh, energy level goes up mm-hmm. Their thyroid kicks in and they get a desire to get after it and mm-hmm. they don't easily get distracted from it. It's like the, that's a person with a mission. Yeah. And 
anytime you're not filling your day with high priority actions that inspire you, your day fills up with low priority distractions that don't. Mm-hmm. And anytime you're not fulfilling what's most meaningful to you, you fill your day with meaningless stuff. And anything that's high in your value, you have fulfillment over. Anything low in your value, you have unfulfillment. Mm-hmm. And when you have unfulfillment, you try to fill it full with alternative things. And whenever you're not living by the highest value, the amygdala comes online, the impulse and instinct center, which wants to avoid pain and seek pleasure, avoid predator and seek prey, avoid difficulty and seek ease. And that is the center that is interested in looking for prey, which is food, and avoiding predator, which is being eaten. Mm -hmm. So this area, when it comes online, when you're unfulfilled, um, the addictive, impulsive, compulsive, immediate gratifying behaviors immediately surface when you're not filling your day with meaningful things. Yeah. A woman who, uh, let's say she's about to get married and she's 10 to 12 days, 14 days out. And she knows she wants to look good in that dress on that wedding day. She will have incredible discipline because she's now got a purpose that's meaningful to her, that's inspiring to her. And she will navigate and get to that day and won't eat. She'll do whatever it takes to get there because she knows that picture is going to be with her. Yeah, yeah. Because she's got something meaningful, she doesn't have an eating disorder that, during the last two weeks. She doesn't have a, a consuming thing. She buys only what's priority for that mission. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't fill your day with things that are meaningful, you're vulnerable for consumerism and living through other people's brands to make you feel better about yourself because you're infatuated with them and think that'll help you temporarily. It's only temporary. Or you'll go into eating to fill that which is empty because you're not feeling fulfilled. And... I have had many women uh, who, in their lives, they have perceived a series of events in their life that did not match their fantasy about how life's supposed to be, or did not match what was meaningful to them, either or. The unfulfillment and the feelings that that didn't set up what I call subjective subjective behaviors, which makes you more addicted. Mm -hmm. And so your brain wants to avoid that, and when it's unfulfilled and it's reminded of that, it wants to go and get something that increases glucose because glucose allows you to tolerate things easier. Mm-hmm. Your blood sugars. So you go and eat, you'll go consuming because it's a dopamine fix and a glucose fix. Coffee stimulants, things of this nature. People who are inspired by their work and they have projects that are extremely meaningful. They don't want to take a break to eat. They want to eat just to live, not live to eat. Yeah. Yeah. But if they're unengaged, unfulfilled, they're more likely to eat, drink, coffee, stimulants, drugs, porn, who knows what else, because they're unfulfilling their things. So if we don't fill our day with high priority actions, we have a higher probability of being overweight to compensate and to protect us from all the subdictions and things that we've been wounded by. So it's important to find out what is priority, to fill your day with what is priority, and to take whatever you've experienced in your life and find out how it has been on the way and not in the way. Because everything you see in the way increases the probability of the subdiction and the desire to kind of consume, to get glucose up, to avoid it. So it's very important to, to learn how to take, you know, we have control over our perceptions, our decisions and actions in life. And we have to realize that it's not what happens to us. It's our perception of what happens to us. Yeah. And we have to learn how to take no matter what happens to us and ask, how is it helping us fulfill what we our mission, what's in, what's important to us? And instead of how is it in the way, how is it on the way? How does it help me get what I want? Every time we do that, we decrease the probability of having the amygdala come online and our executive center takes back home. 
And every time we make decisions according to priority and then do actions according to priority, our self-worth goes up. And when we're in executive center, we have tremendous discipline to avoid impulse behaviors. So prioritization and neutralization are very important keys in the, the overweight, consuming, overeating, addictive behaviors. I just did a new uh, program, an online video program uh, last week on addiction. And um, I'm really inspired by it. I hope that uh, if people, it should be on any, any day now, it should be coming on our line there. I just filmed it, so it should be coming on board. But if anybody has a concern about that, I would highly recommend taking a peek at that because I know it works. The 12-step program has got a 3 to 7%, 10% uh, result. Uh, this is more like 70 to 90%. This is a very powerful process. It takes work, but it works. And, and ladies, uh, uh, we'll, we'll certainly post some links uh, in the show notes for that um, so that you yeah, can access that. It could help them. Um, it could definitely help. The the uh, the method that I developed on the Demartini method on resolving conflicts. If a woman has a high value on family and relationships, uh, I just worked with a couple till right here in this room till one a.m. last night for four and a half hours with a couple that's the largest landowner in Australia, basically very interesting couple, and um, they have millions of acres of land. But they're lovely people, very lovely people. But they were having some challenges, like all relationships do. You're dealing with two people with two different values and having to communicate in different values is challenging. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, the, the, when, when people are not fulfilled in their life, they, um, they need to know how to navigate through that. And we're not taught that. We don't have a manual that is attached to our body when we're born. And, and so I, the, the method, the, the conflict resolution method that I have, the Martini method, without a doubt helps people because there's a lot of women and men, but particularly women that I've worked with that have unfulfillment in the relationship, but they're somewhat trapped because they feel that they can't do it on their own and live the life that they want. And they're not really fulfilled, but they feel trapped and they don't really want to have an affair because they got family and, and they don't want to take the risks and they don't know how to process it. And they put on weight as a protective mechanism to keep them from getting pregnant. I had a woman, I, I hope this is not too long, but no, you're being so generous with your time. We can go as long as you can. Uh, well, I had an interesting court, uh, case. This is a very interesting one. I had a woman who um, was in Florida, attended the breakthrough experience who the only time she felt in her perception, at least before I got hold of her, I, I helped her change her perception, but beforehand she believed that the only time her father ever gave her affection is when he had to feed her in the hive chair. So that she associated daddy's attention with eating. Yeah. And so when she got older and had conflicts with her dad, she started eating disorder and was eating as her way of getting her dad in her life. Wasn't even aware of it. Totally unconsciousness. We uncovered that and we found out that when she got married, she started bulimia. She would eat to get her dad's affection. But then she would lose weight because she noticed her husband had fa fantasies of women with small butts and thighs. <laughs> so she would then vomit to keep her weight down. So she was trying to get affection from dad by eating and trying to uh, get affection from her husband by vomiting. Wow. Strange as it may sound. Yeah. And so we uncovered this. And then we got them dialoguing and communicating. And she was not appreciating her body 
because after the last child, she didn't want to have another child. So she put on weight to protect herself from him being attracted to her, but didn't want to do it too far because then she'd lose him. I wouldn't have a way of, I mean, it was just convoluted as hell in her head. And so she felt that no matter which way she went, she couldn't get what she wanted. And it's all unconscious because most of the unconscious motives are running things. Most of our life are subconscious and unconscious motives. And we're not even realizing. So we had to clear the issue with the dad by finding out how he showed affection in other ways. When her dad wasn't there, who took on the role of the dad and the benefit of that and the drawback if he'd been around the way her fantasy was. We had to clear the fantasies. She finally cleared that, had good tears about that, saw the order of it. Then we had to realize that her husband uh, had an issue when he was a teenager. Uh, he got slammed for, excuse the expression, but he was masturbating. His father and mother uh, beat him. And, 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 and so he had an issue. He was stuck at 13. And so he had this need to look at 13-year-old bodies because that's what happens when you get uh, an emotional charge like that. Wow. And so he was interested in the thing. And so we cleared that with him. So he could appreciate his wife. And we worked for three and a half hours and cleared all this stuff doing the Demartini method. And um, man, it was amazing. And I've known him now, this is 26 years ago, 25 and a half years ago. And um, it, it normalized her weight. Uh, the bulimia stopped. Um, she loves her dad. He's, he's now soon passing. Um, it changed their whole dynamic. And he cleared the issue with that. And, and it's amazing. So we have all these buried stuff that we don't know how to access and don't know how to neutralize sometimes. That's why I developed the method to help people do that. Mm -hmm. that, that method is very powerful in, in uncovering and navigating and finding out what those are and then piece by piece putting that puzzle back together and clearing it all out. And I've seen women, you know, women are very good uh, when they get dumped by a man or leave a man. They can get in shape. I've seen women drop 40 pounds in a month. Yeah, I mean, they when they need to get back into the market, um, they can do amazing stuff to get back in that market to compete. So it's not that they can't do it. They've got a motive not to. And they need to be a conscious, uh, conscious of what that is. And um, so yeah, that that's what I, I love doing. I love helping people find out and work through that. And we've helped mm -hmm. a lot of women who, who thought they had obese problems or whatever. Mm -hmm. I had a woman I got I got sure. Another one. I had a woman I was doing a reality TV show and in LA in Universal Studios and there's a lady there that walked in they, they gave me 12 people in 24 hours worth of work two hours a person to change their lives before it happened no pressure no pressure <laughs> and one of them was this woman that walked in she had two boxes of food and she said I brought everybody some food all the crew and everything else because there's like 12 people at this film shoot and um Nobody ate it except her. Wow. She ate two boxes of food nonstop. It was a grazing, binging thing I like I'd not seen before. It's like I saw when Oprah, when I first met Oprah, she was eating, she ate three plates of food one night. I'd never seen somebody eat so much. And um ah, interesting. Yeah, way back. This is many years ago. So when I first met her. So um this lady ate that box and the other next box. And she said, you got to help me. I've, I've got to lose weight. I mean, look at me. I can't stop this. I can't. Do it. And I said, what's the benefit you're getting out of eating and gaining weight? She says, I said, no benefits. You got you to stop me. And I said, no, 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 no. Nobody does something without they perceiving there's more advantage and disadvantage. Mm -hmm. No human being ever makes a decision and makes an action 
unless they consciously or unconsciously believe that there's more advantage and disadvantage or they won't do it. So if you're overeating, you're perceiving more advantage and disadvantage. What you're telling me, I don't pay attention to. I look at your actions. So what are the benefits you're getting? She goes, I can't think of anything. So I held her accountable. So what are the benefits you get? And all of a sudden she got a little teary eyed. She says, everyone in my family is obese. If I come home and see my family and if I'm not obese, I don't feel like I'm part of my family. I feel rejected. And she goes, well, then the second one she got, we asked her, what's another benefit? My sister used to push me around and I made a commitment that she would never push me around again. So no matter what size she is, I'm always bigger than her. I said, so what's another benefit? What's another benefit? And then a big gully washer came. She said, well, she started shaking. She said, one time I went on this incredible fasting diet. I lost 45 pounds. I started to have a bit of a shape. The only time in my life I ever had any shape. And a guy hit on me. And I thought, since I'd never been with a guy, that this guy loved me. I didn't know any different. I was naive. And I made love with him right away. And the next morning, I never saw him again. And six weeks later, I found out I was pregnant. And I'm Catholic. And so I was raised, you're going to go to hell if you have an abortion. And you're going to go to hell if you have a baby without wedlock. And I saw a trap. I didn't see any way out. So I did have the abortion, she said. And it was the most terrifying thing I had to face. And I've never loved myself since. And I've had problems with men because I never allow a really good man in my life because I don't feel worthy of it. And she said, and she said, and, and I think I did is I swore that I would never lose weight again because that was the most painful moment in my life when I lost all that weight. And she just bawled. And we went and did 150 benefits so she could bring all the unconscious motives to the surface. And when she threw, she says, the way these are unconsciously, there's no way I would ever lose weight. I said, that's why you're doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. She goes, I can't believe I didn't see all this. So then we had to come up with viable alternative ways of getting those same benefits down without having to be eating. So we had to come up with how else can you be part of the family without having to be with weight? Are there other things that you can mm -hmm. find in common that you can capitalize on? And how else can you, um, you know, do the things you want to do and get these benefits out of it to protect yourself from having to be hurt again? We had to go through this. And I went and did the Demartini method on the hurt, and cleared it. And we came up with viable alternative ways of getting those same benefits. Because really, there was only about 17 major benefits that out of all the benefits, there are really 17 real core things she was doing. And we came up with viable alternatives to get those. And then we linked those to her highest values and then delinked what she was doing, eating to it. Mm. And then we went to all the subdictions and wounds in her life. Because every time we have a wound in life that we think is in the way, our brain wants to avoid that and do its opposite to try to have an addiction. Because we're subdicting from one and addicting to the other. And as long as we're subdicting from something, anything that we believe about ourselves or anybody, we're headed towards an addictive behavior. And so we, we worked step, the, the addiction process that I have online, I went through step by step what we did and uh, to change a person's life. So it, there's a science and methodical way of doing it. It mm -hmm. takes work, it's not easy, but it works. And uh, it's, it's basically making a science out of the brain that that we don't have, we're not used to using. We're, we're hoping and praying and not really understanding methodically what to do. So I've seen some amazing reasons why people uh, keep weight on. I've seen them to 
to I had a woman I got to two other ones because hopefully yes please do I had a woman in in San Diego who was when I first met her was quite hot I mean really put herself together and she was a lawyer and she just graduated and she had just gotten married mm -hmm. and um but what she noticed is that every time she'd get a client a male client the wives would undermine it the wives didn't want their their husbands to have that lawyer because she was too cute mm -hmm. so what she did not even realizing it she ended up gaining weight putting on glasses her eyes literally deteriorated to protect herself from being rejected by the men um the wives and um put on weight got glasses cut her hair became more frumpy mm -hmm. to get business and made sure she friend befriended all the wives it was no longer a threat but she in the process of doing it the more she wanted to build her business the more she had to be frumpy and not threatening and she became aware of that and we had to revamp that thinking and how to make sure the women are there and she, when the second she saw how she could get what she wanted she dropped away she was hot again and she because now she became the friends and and said that I keep men in line and everything else and get, befriended all the women and it was really quite women and she and, and the women weren't threatened by her anymore mm -hmm. so she figured out how to do that then I had another one that uh, gained weight over her husband was looking at other women and he never had the affair never did anything they just could not not look at other women and men have a an eye for moving targets right yeah <laughs> they're hunters sure. yeah so they're, they're gonna look at that they're visual creatures more so women are a little bit more tactile men are more visual that's the way it works so you know she put on weight to protect herself from assuming that he was going to leave her for another woman and she put on weight to protect it which was increasing the probability of pushing him out because she was trying to preempt a strike and project him before she could reject her he could reject her and she got in touch with that and realized that and she goes that's just the opposite of what i really want and i said exactly so she once she saw what she was doing and we took every one of the I said, anytime you're infatuated with your man, you fear the loss of him. And so you we had to break the infatuation with him, level the playing field. So she felt she was empowered. She got in shape really quick. I mean, weeks. So there's no the games we play. Yeah. Yeah, there's all kind of I mean, I could go for hours on this one. <laughs> um, Dr. Dimantini, can I ask you about um, what sort of things or what patterns you've seen in women who have been told they're infertile? Um, because that is such a emotional um, and really hard thing. Because that's what I see every single day is women um, who are trying to conceive. Yeah. And what, what's been your experience with that? The first thing I do is ask him a simple question. Because mm -hmm. I get a lot of that. I see that every week. You know, women trying to have kids. Yeah. I, I had I had one that I worked with recently that um, ended up doing the IVF, you know, route. And now she has zero to four. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> she went, oh. <laughs> She's got four now <laughs> in one package. Wow. So it was funny. But she um, she goes, I, I, she was infatuated with having kids. Yeah. And this, this helped cure some of that. Anyway, because now she's got not enough hands for everything. She needs. She has to become a Hindu goddess worshiper now. <laughs> oh, absolutely! But anyway, um, the first thing I ask a woman who's having this issue is to ask them 
Give me the one word that describes your perception of your mother. Oh, interesting. And, and if they say uh, something like disempowered or trapped mm -hmm. or um, weak, the first thing I do is I make sure that they do the Demartini method on their mother. Okay. Because if they're in any way, now this isn't in all cases, but there's enough cases it's worth warning. In, in, if there's any possible way, they would never want to be like their mother and never want to be uh, a stay-home mother. And they want to be, you know, they want their autonomy and not have to depend on a man that maybe was aggressive and, and assertive, dominating. They will protect themselves from having kids to never be trapped by that. So that's the first place I start. Mm -hmm. Then I start asking him, uh, what are the drawbacks you anticipate if all of a sudden you had kids? Because I want them to have the unconscious motive back up conscious. And many of them are in conflict inside between uh, what they want to do in their career and whether they can do that with kids. And they're, they're, they're wondering if, if they'll destroy their life and become dependent. Some of them are thinking though that they're used to being attractive and they're afraid to, that they lose their body and their, their looks mm -hmm. will happen because they think their husbands really are interested in their body. And, you know, I, I, every weekend, the breakthrough experience, I shatter the myth that women sometimes have thinking that, that the most important thing is their looks because many women put their emphasis on that. And I explain that, that it's, it, it's your intelligence, it's your business savvy, it's your, your, your financial management, it's all the above. All seven areas of your life are playing a role and a man's not looking only for looks, that's just a starting point. Mm -hmm. And if all you have is looks, you're a rental plan, not a purchase plan. You have to, you have to be, watch out for that. Because uh, you, know, you need to have something going for you that's beyond that because that's a depreciating asset otherwise. And uh, so I, I, they have to have realistic expectations and sometimes they don't, and sometimes they're vulnerable, and so they're protecting themselves from being trapped by having kids. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they do not ever want to depend on a man. And so what they're doing is they, they, they'll either do an, the difficulty, and then they don't want to be trapped because they think if they, if they have a man giving them the sperm, um, that, they, that he has control. Yeah. And they want to control, and they want to do it their way. So there's, I have to go in and find out their unconscious motives, and there's, there's about – I'm going to guess around 27 common patterns that I've seen in women that have the IVF issue, uh, you know, that they have to go to other forms of fertility. And I had a woman named Deborah who came in my office who had short hair, had a, a, a blue suit on, mm -hmm. was quite masculine, had glasses, ran a financial management, asset management company, had a, a lot of testosterone and was trying to get pregnant and couldn't get pregnant. She tried for four years. Mm -hmm. And we, it was obvious she was trying to be in the male world, compete with the male world. Mm -hmm. And um, she was successful at it. She did well. But inside, she didn't want to be like her mother. She didn't want to depend on her man. She always wanted to make sure she had control over everything financially. Um, she thought she was more intelligent. And she got a guy that was passive and uh, made sure that he, if he left, he couldn't hurt her. I mean, she had everything laid out to protect herself. Yeah. And she, we cleared that. I spent four and a half hours in my office clearing everything we came up with. And she's pregnant in two weeks. They said that she wasn't going to get pregnant in two, two weeks. She has two kids today. 
And she had to let herself, um, you know, allow herself to be the feminine side. She couldn't do it. She had such a charge against the female. She didn't even believe it. She was into female power, but male power. And she was actually didn't, she was not using her feminine side. Today, uh, she allows both the male and female side. She knows how to put it on both of them. It's quite interesting to see the difference. There's another lady um, who was married, married to the head of Coca-Cola. And um, that I worked with is really interesting. This guy who is this heavy CEO of a major company had a wife with five kids and he was totally business. She was totally family, which all relationships strive for androgyny. So that's the way it works. Mm-hmm. You're going to go totally into business and intellectual and financial and they're going to go into family, social and beauty. And they have to because the androgyny is the ruler of the relationships. So he was thinking that I want a woman more like me. So that was his delusion because mm-hmm. people are infatuated with things that are similar to theirs. And they resent things that are different than them, but they need the similars and differences to grow. Yeah. You don't grow otherwise. So he was ready to divorce his wife because she's just totally into folk and kids focusing on them. And he meets this girl that's at EDS that is short hair, masculine leader, business, everything else. And they have this incredible dynamic going on while he's still with his wife um, in, a, in a departure phase of his wife, going through a divorce. Mm-hmm. And he thinks, I finally get a woman that understands me, that's, that's uh, you know, business and intelligent and everything he thought he wanted. The second the divorce gets done, uh, the girl is now 36. And all of a sudden she's going, oh, shit, if I... I got now three to 10 years, you know, three to five years, 10 years, maybe I got to have my kids. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the second she had a guy that was empowered financially and business and everything else, she flipped. The androgyny took over and she flipped and she said, I need to have kids. And he went, go, oh, oh, well, they have two kids today. He grew, he grew past his anger. He now understands the androgyny, now understands what's going on. His original kids are growing up. He spends more time with his kids. It's, it's, and his wife is now, his first wife is now running a business. It's, it's hilarious watching the whole thing. And, uh, and now his, his current wife is right down the middle. She's business still, but not but part-time. She's got the kids. She's not too masculine. She's not too feminine. He's now more masculine than feminine. They both came to kind of a balance of androgyny yeah. instead of the polarities. And he now understands the whole picture. He's, he's very aware now. But it took a few uh, sledgehammers and, and chisels on his statue to get him to wake up, you know. Oh, that makes uh, – that actually really does make a lot of sense. That's so interesting. Um, okay, Dr. Martini, I have, I have one more question for you. So you have – I know you've studied the great philosophers, you know, throughout the ages and, and the teachers. And I know you've got a pretty impressive mastermind group with, you know, the Dalai Lama and Deepak Chopra and um, so on. So what I want to know is what do you think the meaning of life is? Well, the word meaning originates uh, really in the Greek term, the mean, the golden mean. Mm-hmm. So we have, uh, in our life, we have times when we exaggerate ourselves, and other times when we minimize ourselves, and other times when we are ourselves. Mm-hmm. The mean was the mean between the oscillations of who we were. Okay. And the golden mean was the ratio, 
the, the phi ratio, the sacred ratio of 1.618 or 0.618. And this was the Fibonacci oscillating numbers, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, 55, 88, 144, et cetera. The Fibonacci sequence of numbers that eventually oscillated and approximated to this golden mean, this proportion. Okay. And so our mind oscillates and tries to find that mean, which is our center point. Mm -hmm. So meaning and finding meaning in things is where we have the most centered and the most objective equanimity. Okay. So when we live by our highest values, the very highest values, we have this state because this is where we're most objective, most reasonable, least emotive, which mm -hmm. oscillates us. Mm -hmm. So finding meaning in life was really finding our highest value. Uh, the, the, the Greek Delphic uh, teacher said that we need to be ourselves, know ourselves, be ourselves, and love ourselves. Our identity, our ontological identity and being revolve around our highest value. Mm -hmm. Whatever we value most is what we identify. If your highest value is raising a beautiful family, you're going to call yourself a mother. If that's who you are. If your mm -hmm. highest value is running a business, you're going to call yourself an entrepreneur. So we identify ourselves by what we value in our life most. And that's the one where we have the most meaning. Mm -hmm. In fact, the telos, which is a Greek word for the end in mind, which is the highest value, is the study of meaning and purpose. So when we are identify our highest value and have the most meaning and fulfillment there, uh, that's who we are. Mm -hmm. and, and when we live by that and we live with meaning and fulfillment, we have the most mastery. And so the meaning of life is whatever is truly highest on each person's value. So if you're dedicated to spiritual causes and that's what's meaningful to you, that's what your highest value is, you'll perceive the meaning of the world through those spiritual eyes. If your highest value is raising children and you want to be a mother and that's your dream, then you'll see the meaning of life is procreating and bringing beautiful children to the world. Mm -hmm. If your highest value is, is, is serving people as an entrepreneur, you'll see the meaning like Richard Branson with 400 companies. Mm -hmm. So the meaning is not one universal meaning other than to love and be loved and be grateful for life because that's what you feel when you're doing what's truly meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. It's basically individualistic according to what they value most. And there's, there's collectives that have similar, but no one's exactly the same. Where it's like snowflakes. So each individual has to add and create and extract meaning according to what they value most in their own life. And it's therefore the meaning we give it according to our values. And that can change throughout our life. Mm -hmm. That definitely wasn't the answer that I was expecting, um, but that's great. Thank you. Okay. One last question. Um, and this is just for my own, my own personal benefit. And this is something that I've always wondered about you when you are on stage um, and I've seen you so many times, you are so, so focused and so articulate and so in flow, um, you, you don't even say um or ah, uh, or there's no stumbling, there's, there's nothing. Is that something that you've learned? It almost seems like um, it's, it's channeled. <laughs> Is that just something that you've really developed over time? I can't say that I'm fluent in every time uh, because I have probably more fluent, less fluent moments. Um, I have so much that I want to share, mm -hmm. that I just want to share. And I think that it's just an accumulation of information over time that wants to say in a short period of time what I want to say. 
there's nothing more than that. There's nothing special in there. There's no, you know, special things in there. I was told when I was uh, probably 20, early 20s that if you're going to do a speech for 30 minutes, have at least two hours worth of material ready. If you're going to do a speech all day, have at least a week's worth of material ready. Always have at least four to five times the amount of material. And therefore, you, you don't have to grab for what am I going to say next? You just mm -hmm. automatically have something to say. So it's just an accumulation. I mean, I, I've read over 30,000 books, so I have some, I have a bit of information that I can say. And, and I have been speaking for 45 plus years. So you, you know, and I've spoken on thousands of topics mm -hmm. and I'm sort of polymathic in the sense that I can, I may be speaking in Tehran and government change management and economic policies. I may be in to Tokyo dealing with um, education. I may be speaking at a health conference on physiology, a concert, cancer conference, the next thing, and an astronomy conference at university. So I've got a diversity of things that I lecture on. And because of that diversity and because of the lateralization of all those disciplines put together, because I've written on 297 different disciplines, I have a plenty of information I can, I can download. So there's nothing really other than that, I think. I think it's just that I've got something I want to say and I've got more than people probably want to hear. <laughs> That's brilliant. Thank you so much. Dr. Dimatini, where can our listeners find out more about you? Well, the best way to go is to go onto our website, drdmartini.com, which is about to be updated. Mm -hmm. The new one's about to come out. Um, but drdmartini.com, D-R-D-Martini, D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com. And, um, or, or our Facebook, that, they're all linked together. But go to the website, and on there, there are thousands of radio shows, mm -hmm. TV shows, newspapers, magazines, articles, inspired writings, video clips. You could probably spend the rest of your life on there and still not run out of things to do uh, on just educating yourself. So I, I tell people, take advantage of it. A lot of it's complimentary. That's and, uh, brilliant. And if they can come to events, that's even icing. I mean, I, I, I think being at a live event is more powerful than anything. Because you get to oh, okay. interact and dialogue and and you get your own questions addressed and 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 I think being alive is even better than a video, but you know, that's the best place to get hold of me. I'm I'm full time traveling and uh you know I I was in South Africa till day before yet or let's say Friday I came in Friday. I'm here for a couple of days doing media and stuff and uh, filming and webinars and then I am off to Tokyo. And from there, I go to, to uh, I think, Houston and then Calgary and then back to Australia. I, mean, I, I full-time travel. 360 days a year, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's 365 because even when I'm not traveling and living in hotels, I, I live on a ship you know, in the world. And that travels full-time around the world. So if I'm not traveling, I'm traveling. Yeah. Yeah, that is amazing. Uh, Dr. Dimartini, thank you so much for your time. I'm so, so grateful for how generous you were with your time today and all of this incredible information. I certainly recommend that everyone should at least do the breakthrough experience at least once in their life. Uh, it, it will certainly change their life. So once again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. And whoever's out there um, tonight when you go to the bed, I have a song. Oh, I have a song that's called John's Song. Go on. <laughs> and, and, I, and I produced it uh, a couple years ago. I didn't, but people did. They helped me with it. And and if you get a chance to go online, just look up John's song or look on my website and see if you can find it. It's a beautiful song about loving yourself. And um, 
It's a video and song together that we did. It's worth taking the time to find it. I bet you'll play it more than once. Okay. And, um, and so I tell people that no matter what you've done or not done, you're worthy of love. And it's wise to give yourself permission to do something extraordinary with life because you're an extraordinary person. Don't lie to yourself saying anything less. What a beautiful message to, to finish on. Thank you. Um, and ladies, we'll definitely post a link to that below. So we will, we will find it for you because um, that sounds amazing. And I certainly want to hear that too. Yeah, it's the, there's two songs actually, but the first one where the kids are jumping off into the water is the one I, I, I let, let people get that. And is that the kind of stuff that you do for fun? Because I know you don't have a cell phone. I know you don't um, buy into any kind of social media gossip or, or anything like that. Is, is that what is your downtime? Uh, well, I don't have downtime. I was wondering that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, my girlfriend says that's the, the challenge sometimes. She says, I'm reading a book when I'm making love with her sometimes. That would certainly be multitasking. <laughs> I, I'm joking. But um, I, um, I, I can't say that that's what I do for downtime because I really don't use downtime. I fill my day with things that are meaningful. But I, uh, I was asked to put this song together. Uh, because they took live clips from some of my presentations and they put it into this thing and it was fabulous. But I, I just, m m my time is I, I like researching, writing, traveling, teaching and yeah. hugging my girlfriend. That's it. That's, that, that's it right in those areas. <laughs> Great. Uh, Dr. Timiatini, thank you so much again. Thanks for being on Wellness Moon Radio and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh my goodness, that was just incredible. How do you compress like the universe and every life teaching into one hour? He just seems to do that effortlessly. What did you, this must have just blown you away, Andrea. Um, it was so funny because at first when we started chatting, like I've met him many times. I've been to so many of his workshops. Like I met him for oh, the first time when I was 15. And yeah. um, he, like at the start, he was, I think, a little bit standoffish, just a little yeah. bit. But then as he got into it, it was amazing, like seeing him engage. Like he was leaning into the camera. He was making jokes. Like it was amazing. Um, what, yeah. What a so generous human much, being. So much gold right there. Yeah. So, ladies, we hope you love this episode. If you certainly loved it, then make sure you go on to iTunes, give us a five-star rating because we really appreciate and love all the uh, the love you share with us. That's how we uh, get our podcast out there to the world, to the ladies that really, really need this uh, information. And, of course, go on to our Facebook site. It's www.facebook.com forward slash The Wellness Women. Our Instagram handle is at The Wellness Women Official. So that's how you find us. That's how you interact with us. Look, give any comments you like. We're always there to help you and support you. It's just been such a treat today. So we hope you loved it as much as we do. Have an amazing week. And until next week, ladies, be well. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.